Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. My name is Jack Thompson and I'm joined by Jenny Davidson. Jenny, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Jack. Brilliant. On this edition of the podcast, Mandy Rhodes will bring us an interview with Simon Fanshaw, one of the original co-founders of Stonewall. But first, we have another issue of the magazine out, which features some exclusive polling with MSPs on the matter of mental health. We had some interesting survey results, notably that almost 7 in 10 MSPs have experienced a mental health issue such as depression, anxiety or stress. Of those who had, 82% said it had impacted their work or personal life. Jenny, I'm wondering, what did you make of the findings from the polling in the magazine? Well, I thought the the interesting thing particularly was that headline figure that almost 70% of MSPs who replied to the survey had suffered from um, some form of mental health problem. I mean, that's obviously a huge number. And even taking into account that being an MSP is an incredibly stressful job, perhaps one of the most stressful jobs. We're also just after an election. So some of these MSPs have only just become MSPs right now. So it's not only the stress of the job. But I mean, when you just think that of the need for improving mental health services and, and reform and things. It's really interesting that so many MSPs have personal experience of this and, and really understand what, what people are going through. So there should be an, in, an impetus, I think, for, for making these changes. So I think that was particularly interesting, how many um, MSPs are, are struggling. And, and obviously 82% then said that it had an impact, which isn't surprising because obviously if you have a mental health problem, it tends to have some kind of impact on your on your life and particularly, obviously, if you've got a very high pressure job. And um, I mean, one of the other interesting things was, I think, um, 5% said that their mental health wasn't great now and, and 39% said it was sort of fair or not great. So, you know, quite a few of them are, are struggling right at the moment. It's not just at some point in the past. Um, and in terms of sort of dealing it with it, there were, you know, there were kind of more or less healthy ways of dealing with it. You know, some, you know, uh, the kind of majority um, solutions, um, the most popular ones were exercise, maintaining a sense of purpose, sharing problems with loved ones. But it's also notable that 14% admitted to using alcohol as a, as a way of dealing with, with stress and mental health problems. And I was surprised that was so high, but then in some some way I almost wonder if maybe it's higher and people mm-hmm. don't necessarily think about that as being a coping mechanism don't necessarily realize perhaps in some cases that's what they're doing and if you think about um, Scotland's problems with alcohol as a, as a nation that's that's probably pretty common I mean what did you think Jack? Yeah I mean it was certainly very interesting I think sometimes with um, politicians you you kind of forget because of the nature of the job that you know there are people too who go through, you know, a lot of the same experiences that, that you know their constituents go through. So um, it was certainly, you know, interesting to to kind of um, see see those responses, and you know, um, hopefully it goes some way as well. You know, we've probably in the in the past few years come quite a considerable distance in 
and tackling the stigma, you know, around talking about mental health. And so hopefully, you know, some of the responses to this survey will kind of um, add to that as well. Um, and of course, you know, also in the magazine, we had an interview with um, the SNP's Emma Roddick and, you know, the, the 23-year-old, she's one of our, our party's new crop of MSPs. And um, she spoke to our deputy editor, Chris Marshall, about her experience of um, mental health, her experience of borderline um, personality disorder. And she also spoke about other things, you know, you know, kind of her experience of loss and, and interest in housing policy. Um, but that was a very, for me, quite a candid interview um, where she maybe, she maybe challenged some of the misconceptions that we see around mental health. Um, and I wonder, do you, did you get a chance to read that? Um, and was there anything that you know, stood out from her interview um, about what she spoke about? I think there are a couple of things that really stood out from her interview. I mean, one of them was her experience of Twitter and of really having sort of pile-ons and, and, and really negative, nasty mm. reactions to um, things she'd posted, which was quite a new experience to her. She obviously hadn't been as high profile before. Um, she was just elected as an MSP last month. So this is quite a new experience. And she'd posted about struggling to make ends meet really in that, that first month before she got her first um, salary as an MSP. And obviously she hadn't been anything like the the same level of salary before. And, and she got really you know quite a lot of negative comments back from that and she was she was shocked and yeah that that obviously is a, a huge impact on mental health I mean Twitter can be a very very nasty place MSPs and MPs in particular get a you know really a lot of abuse on there and that must be incredibly hard to take um and I think the other thing was her talking about um how she you know she'd been quite open about having borderline personality disorder and there'd been a lot of comments about that made her unsuitable to be an MSP, that people with that kind of condition shouldn't be elected representatives. And that suggestion that obviously she wouldn't, she wouldn't be able to cope, she wouldn't be able to do the job properly. And, and that kind of feeds back to some of the comments that were coming from other MSPs who got lots of anonymous comments in the article. Um, you know, and some of that was about the effect on their family relationships and, and really of being bad-tempered, of struggling with their family relationships. But there was also talk about how it's very difficult to be open about struggling with this as an MSP um, and kind of feeling that you weren't doing the job properly, that you were letting people down, that you were letting yourself down, that they were struggling with the job. And I think that's obviously it's a particular issue with being an MSP, that, you know, that feeling that you're meant to be on top of everything, that you're meant to be... Um, serving all your constituents the very best all the time and you know you can't let people down and if you do you're you're failing um but also that difficulty that other people might attack you as as failing as um mp nadia whittam um, who's been open about taking some time off recently for her mental health um is actually is, is people attacking you that saying that you aren't you aren't good enough you aren't fit for elected office because you aren't doing that job properly and that makes it very very difficult for for people to be open about their mental mm. health yeah yeah exactly and it's um i guess you know part of the you know having a more representative parliament is having you know more people who because you know we know obviously that so many people have um you know, experience of mental health issues and so part of a more representative parliament is having you know MSPs who have got that experience and and obviously can relate to it personally, um, you know, as they're considering things like mental health services. Um, and the magazine, we also have, you know, much more. Um, so we'd encourage people to, 
know, pick it up and it's also available um, to look at on the website. Um, so you can take a look at our interview with Sir Jeff Palmer and why Scotland needs to stop playing down its role in the, uh, the slave trade, as well as our interview with uh, Kevin Stewart, the newly appointed Minister for Mental Wellbeing and Social Care, which is obviously quite a timely one uh, with that mental health theme. Um, and finally, now that we're uh, into June, it is, of course, uh, Pride Month. It's been a, a strange start to this year's celebrations, with it being reported that the UK Equalities Minister, Liz Truss, is urging for government departments to withdraw from Stonewall's Diversity Champions Scheme. Um, the LGBT charity is at the centre of uh, a storm around trans rights. Um, and following recent events, that brings us on um, quite nicely to our podcast interview. Uh, Holyrood's editor, Mandy Rhodes, spoke to Simon Fanshawe, which you can listen to now. Simon, I was looking back at the interview that we did two years ago now, um, when at that point you were talking about potentially looking at setting up a new organisation, LGB Alliance, which is what happened. But I kind of, I guess... I, Today, of all days, when it's the start of Pride Month, I want us to just go back a little bit and talk about you as a founding member of Stonewall and what the point of that was and why you wanted to do it. Yes, I'm a little bit cautious um, about the founder member of Stonewall bit. It's true. But what I don't want this and what I'm clear about in my own mind is not a, a nostalgic desire to go back to days when. I don't have founder's syndrome. I know that we're accused of that. I think that I'm always forward looking. And what I want is I want Stonewall to be as relevant to today as it was then. And by that, I mean that when you're looking to achieve social change, which is what we wanted to try and achieve, we were looking to do that in the first instance via the legislature by parliament. We wanted to change the laws. There were a set of discriminatory laws, mainly against gay men, some against lesbians in relation to parenting and so on and so forth, but mainly against gay men. And so it was an explicit attempt at that point to set up an organisation that could consistently and professionally lobby parliament and other bits of government, so local authorities or whatever, because that's the bit of the armoury that at that point gay campaigning didn't have. You know, we had lots of dressing up as nuns and getting on roller skates and invading psychiatric conferences, which was a fantastic way of sort of delighting people to our presence. But what we realised around Section 28 was we didn't have just that consistent ability to make contact with parliamentarians and other, other policy and lawmakers and change the law. And the way that you, you, the way that you have to do that is there only one way? The best way of doing that is that you build broad alliances around questions of principle which with people who also feel affected by that issue. So what do I mean by that? So what you say to people, for instance, who are religious, there's no point saying to people if they say, well, homosexuality is a sin. There's no point trying to convince them that it isn't. But what I think you can make common cause with them about is that it is undemocratic or it is unhealthy in a democratic society for one group of people to be treated differently under the law in a discriminatory way than another group of people. And religious people understand that because they experience it. So what I'm saying is that there's a mechanism about social change, which I think Stonewall, and it's particularly down to the political brilliance actually of Angela Mason, who was the chief executive, 
It was that ability to create those broad alliances. What I think Stonewall could do now and isn't doing is similarly really to unite people around some common principles which could embrace equality for trans people and and same-sex spaces and services and other rights for women. But instead it's chosen to divide and go down a singular, what I would call an ideological path. And I think that's a shame because I think that's not the tradition either of it, actually, or of other organisations that have successfully created those big, broad alliances. I mean, I think we'll come back onto lots of the things that you've just said there. But when you talk about the change that was needed and necessary and should have have happened uh, back in the 80s, I mean, I think you know, lots of people watched It's a Sin last year mm-hmm. and were quite shocked, uh, enlightened, joyed, felt sad about everything that, that painted a picture of the 80s that you and I both remember and that you as a gay man were suffering, I guess, through. But mm. as a feminist, I was very much at your side, I guess. Can you paint a picture of how it felt at that time and why, for you, things desperately needed to change? Well, th- th- there's an arc, I think, which is quite quite interesting. And this was pointed out to me. I made a programme some years ago called The Trouble with Gay Men. It was part of a series. So there's Trouble with Black Men, The Trouble with Young People, The Trouble with Old People. And it was fun. I mean, it was like it was an authored piece. A black man made that program. Gay man made the program I made. And Simon Watney, who's a, who was a founder of Gay Liberation Front back in, in the, I don't know when, 1970, whenever it was at Sussex University. Simon pointed out something really insightful to me, which was that after 67, when the decriminalisation of homosexuality happened, what that enabled was, if you might call it this, a legal visibility. So in other words, the only weapon that we've really got politically is visibility. If you're in the closet, then you can't be a gay man. Whereas if you're out, I and mean, it's like Han- Hannah Arendt always said, you know, if you're attacked as a Jew, you have to defend yourself as a Jew. It's no use defending yourself as a German or a French person. So, you know, the visibility was very powerful. But what Simon pointed out to me, which I hadn't really, I hadn't connected these dots, that that visibility created a series of networks. And, you know, from rambling to Gay Liberation Front, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, to dining clubs, to cycling clubs, you know, the whole gamut of social relations, you know. What was fascinating was, he pointed out to me, was that when AIDS hit, and the first person from AIDS died in the UK in 1981, Actually, those networks that had been sort of social, there they were. They sprung into action around AIDS and in, around three particular things, around raising money, around equipping themselves with extraordinary levels of medical and research knowledge, and thirdly, looking after people. And it was those networks that were there when at the end of the decade, the 1980s, sort of seven, eight, nine, Section 28 appeared. Again, those networks were there and they could spring into action. So, you know, that was in the face of profoundly homophobic atmosphere. So the sun, when the when the miners' strike happened in the 80s, middle of the 80s, and there was the, I mean, if anybody's seen the film Pride, they will know this mad relationship set up between lesbians and gays and the um, and the mining community in the Dulé Valley. Um, the sun headline uh, 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 was pits and perverts. 
you know, so that was that was pervert. So that was that was acceptable. And, um, the the Daily Star had a columnist, the Angry Voice, I think he was called, and it was like, I'm here in order to stop the word, the beautiful word, gay, being distorted by the pufters, the pansies, the lezards. You know, that was where we were living. We were all basically, you know, paedophilic scoutmasters. And if you were a lesbian, you know, you were sort of in an army and the major in the army, you know. So that was the atmosphere. What was interesting was that actually in the context of that, relatively quickly appealing to a notion of equality and fairness, people started to say, well, hang on. You know, <laughs> well, they're gay. So, okay, so they've got relationships. So why would that be different from straight relationships? And I think people fairly quickly tumbled to the principle. Whether or not they approved of being gay wasn't really the issue. The issue was one for the whole of democratic society. And it was really, there was a judgment, and I'm now going to forget the date, but when Lady Hale was the, um, at that point, the senior judge in the High Court, which at that stage was, was, was the senior court in the land, there was a judgment about a guy who had nursed his partner through cancer and his partner died, and the landlord immediately tried to take the tenancy back. And he fought this because if he'd been a heterosexual couple, this is pre-civil partnerships, he would have been able to inherit the tenancy. And he won. And Brenda Hale said in her judgment that this, the point about this decision was it was not just fair to them, but it actually was stood for the democratic values of society. So what I'm saying is there's this contradictory thing where on the one hand were, was this profoundly kind of homophobic, hostile atmosphere a tv critic of the sun said that julian clary ruby wax and simon fanshaw are spreading through broadcasting like the aids virus so these are you know these profoundly shocking things now and yet at the same time actually people's strong sense of fairness and equality we could appeal to that and actually we went, oh yeah maybe and so things change. So there's a kind of contradiction in there, is what I'm saying. And you need to, if you want to achieve change, you have to try and find what you can appeal to. So I guess what you're saying is that at that point, you were taking people with you. The public understood what this was all about. You weren't dividing people. And, and that there was a focus around Section 28. Yeah. I've always said that the, 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 for, for the, the thing that I found so inspiring about the people that I met through Stonewall was while there was a profound sense of the injustice, the wrong that needed to be righted, actually what they were really in it for was to build a better country. And so when you asked questions about, I mean, I've always, the one I always think of is, is people would say gay people shouldn't be parents. Okay, well, let's think about that statement. Is that because they won't be good parents? Because, to be honest, there are many, many examples of heterosexuals who are terrible parents. There are many, many examples of heterosexuals who abuse kids. That doesn't mean to say heterosexuals are bad parents. It's to confuse the ability to be a parent with the right to be a parent. So once you start asking questions like that, you start asking questions which are, what do kids need? What do families need? And what do parents need in order to make sure that the next generation grows up supported, fully fledged human beings able to participate in society? And of course, gay people can play a part in that as parents as much as heterosexuals can. So that's a much more interesting idea than should gay people be parents, which is a really an idea based on a kind of prejudice, whereas the other is based on a, a sense of 
actually one of the most important things we do as human beings is bring the next generation up. So we should all participate in that. It was also a prejudice based in complete ignorance, wasn't it, about people's sexuality and what it meant that if you were a gay man, you could then be a paedophile. It was a bizarre well, the, proposition. The, there was that. I, I mean, I think one should say in, 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 in defence of some people who painted homosexuality, particularly male homosexuality, as being promiscuous and so on and so forth. I think there's two things to say about that. If you bottle up people's sexual orientation, and actually I always make the distinction between sexual orientation and sexuality, only that I think sexual orientation is about who you love and sexuality is about how you love them. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm decidedly vanilla, uh, Mandy. You know, I'm happy to, to, you know, I'm happy to have my husband tickle my ear and read me Wind in the Willows, whereas there are other people whose idea... That's age, is, Simon. Well, That's it, age. I've always been like this. You may well be right. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm saying is other people who like, you know, a, a good caning. I think that's sexuality. And I think that sexual orientation is, you know, male on male, male on female, male on female, female on male. So what I was saying was that I think that that um, people had a, a, an idea of, as you say, a distorted idea of, of what all gay men particularly were like. Like all stereotypes, there's a greater truth in there somewhere. I think that when you keep the lid on people's sexual orientation and then you take it off, it's a pressure cooker and people feel their freedom through that which has been denied. So inevitably, sexual freedom and promiscuity became a form of liberation. So there's no doubt about it. It would be foolish to pretend that that wasn't part of the celebration of being gay. And so to some extent, that stereotype had a little bit of truth. I don't know whether any of your listeners remember a cartoonist called Michael Heath, a wonderful cartoonist in Private Eye. And he used to do a column, a, a strip called The Gays. And I knew Michael because he lived in Brighton, which is where I live. And one day I was on the train. Isn't that where Michael. all the gays live? So. We all live there. <laughs> and we all meet. It's important. We all live there. And we all meet on Thursdays. And we all know each other, obviously. Excellent. <laughs> it, is, it is the gay equivalent of the American who says to the British person, oh, you're British? Do you know Anne? <laughs> we have that. Oh, you're in Brighton. Do you know Ronald and Arthur? Actually, it turns out I didn't go to last week's meeting. So, so anyway, so Michael Heath used to do this column called The Gays. And it was pretty scabrous. And Michael is straight and, funny enough, very, very camp at the same time. He often mistaken for a gay man. Terrifically funny man. Um, anyway, so I berated him about this in my 80s way. How dare you, Michael? You're stereotyping us and blah, 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 blah. And Michael said in his characteristic camp way, he said, well, i tell you what, dear. He said, I'll start doing cartoons about what you actually get up to and then you'll have something to complain about. And I, I always loved that because because it'd be foolish to deny that, 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 that promiscuity wasn't a central part of actually discovering who we were, having been told that we weren't. So, so there's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, you're right, that then got, um, like all stereotypes, what happens is they, they, they start with a grain of truth. They then get distended to um, apply to the whole group rather than a part of the group. And then that behaviour gets... Uh, characterized negatively in order to put that group on the other side of a barrier of acceptability. So there's a sort of process, I think, with stereotypes, which, um, and in a sense, you know, that is one of the dangers with the argument around self-ID, that what we have to be really clear about is to say that if self-ID is a legal basis, by which I mean that you can simply by saying so claim a legal right 
to be treated as the opposite sex from which you were born, there will be people who will take advantage of that. And we've seen it in prisons, we've seen it in all sorts of relationships to safeguarding and so on and so forth. We have to be really careful that we don't repeat the mistake and imply that all people who want to self-ID are therefore somehow abusers or want to infiltrate women's spaces for malign reasons. So we have to be really clear, I think, that we don't stereotype the arguments at the moment in the way that we were stereotyped before. Well, so you've introduced this subject well, because obviously we were about to get onto this. In all of that, and I think it's really important what you say, but there's so much emphasis put in on the word but. When you say, when I say, or you say, um, any argument about about self-ID becomes, this is not about being frightened of trans people, but people immediately say you're a bigot. Yes. Look, there are two or three things that need to be clarified, I think. The first is that there is a difference between social presentation, social identification, and allowing self-ID, in other words, merely the saying so, to be the basis for a legal situation. The, the, the issue comes not in social identification. Uh, people can, you know, should and can dress as they want and so on and so forth. That is, that is about presentation. And actually, you know, I remember having a discussion with the building society that we work with and the consultancy that I've got. And there was a whole issue about um, a trans person. Uh, was it a trans person? It was a guy who liked to wear makeup and often wear dresses and so on and so forth. Could they put him on the front line in their, um, what do you call a place where you go to building society? You don't call it an office, do you? Oh, when you go outside. <laughs> that, yeah, oh, when you go outside. But that thing where you have a counter and you yeah. talk to the person on the other side of the glass, yeah. that place. Could you put this person there? And there was lots of head scratching. And that actually what they realised was that there was something kind of eccentric and enjoyable, and I mean eccentric in the best possible way, and enjoyable about this person who was extremely good at what they did in terms of relating to human beings and the customers that came in and so on and so forth. So everybody started to think beyond that, you know, to the qualities that this person was displaying through their cross-dressing or whatever you want to call it. I make that point because, you know, there's a whole set of discussions which employers have to have about whether or not clients will get, you know, will they be uh, disturbed, will they be uneased, blah, blah, blah. What, what that's about is about understanding people in their social context and enabling people to recognise that all behaviour has limitations. Every social situation we go in has limitations. I will not swear on this podcast. I'm accepting that as a, as a limitation. I will not libel anybody because you're going to publish it through the magazine I put you at risk. We all accept limitations on our behaviour. So socially, what employers want to do is enable people to be who they are, but also to accept that there are limitations. Now, what we have to be clear about is that it's not acceptable to say, I'm sorry, I'm not putting a black person on the counter in the building society because people around here are racist and they don't like black people. That is unacceptable. It is unacceptable to say, I'm not going to put a black person in this job because they're black and therefore they're not as intelligent as a white person. These are unacceptable. So we know that. But, but there are limits, reasonable limits that we negotiate with each other. 
So that's social behaviour. And I think, you know, that's something that we need to talk about and how we deal with it. And people need to have the confidence to have that conversation about what works and what doesn't work without being told they're a bigot. Second thing, though, is the legal question. Because if you make self-ID, in other words, I fill in a form, I say so, therefore my birth certificate, passport, my documentation changes, therefore, and we are mainly talking about men transitioning to women, therefore I will for all purposes be treated as a woman. Now, that may or may not be fine, but what I'm saying is that the evidence is clearly in front of us that that causes anxiety of a profound kind to many women who run services that are designed for born women. And whether that's domestic violence, whether that's counselling, group counselling for domestic sexual assault victims, whether it's sport, whether it's whatever, whatever. And my plea is that that needs to be recognised. We need to be able to have a proper discussion about the fact that there is a contradiction there and that just turning around and going bigot because one raises the conflict is an absolute non-starter. That is a complete cul-de-sac and it's a, def- it's a complete defeating of the fundamental ways in which we as a society reach good agreement about things. I mean, it does feel in Scotland, we're now on to our second consultation around GRA, that's happened. Um, and the sticking point about proposals to reform the uh, Gender Recognition Act, and the sticking point always appears to be around self-ID. And there is a feeling, I think, yet again, that this is about women need to be persuaded that there are no risks rather than recognising that women might have valid concerns. It's, it's interesting going back to your point before about the characterisation of gay men. So there would be a kind of, you can't have a gay male teacher who teaches swimming or PE because there will be boys in the showers. So that was the anxiety. It turns out actually a tiny number of those teachers are paedophiles. It also turns out that the paedophiles that there are are not necessarily gay or straight, uh, as the great experts on paedophilia, uh, Michael King once said to me, the trouble with paedophiles is that, that unfortunately they don't have a sexual orientation other than paedophilia. So it's not about girls or boys, you know, and so on and so forth. So, but what the way that was resolved was twofold, wasn't it? One was actually accepting that there is, if albeit minimal, risk to kids. So we have to we have to acknowledge that and make sure that doesn't happen. So that if people do infiltrate those situations for malign reasons, kids are protected, or in this case, women are protected. But we need to have a proper conversation because that's what dissolved that paranoia and fear. Just standing in the other corner of the room and shouting at people doesn't dissolve that fear. Now. I think there is something different between um, the data would suggest there's something different about um, the nature of women's anxiety in the context of domestic violence refuges or uh, group counselling for sexual assault or whatever or whatever. There's something that needs to be ser- taken seriously about the nature of that anxiety in relation to the presence of male-born people. Single-sex wards in the NHS is the same thing. And it's no good saying, as one academic said to me once, a scientist, I don't accept that somebody with a penis is necessarily male-bodied. Well, 
it seems to me you, that is a ridiculous thing to say. Whether or not you're saying they're entitled socially to identify as a female is a different thing from saying they're not male-bodied. So it, what I find so distressing about this discussion is that actually no one's trying to deny the existence of people who want to identify as the opposite sex. No one's denying that they those people should live lives free of discrimination, happiness, and so on and so forth. But actually, it is not reasonable simply to ride roughshod with accusations over genuine concerns. That is That doesn't build the broad alliance I was talking about before. That denial of sex, if you like, that, um, that there is no such thing as sex, that biology doesn't matter, that has been the distressing thing, I guess, for somebody like me as I'm trying to work my way through it. And it is a journey, Simon. Mm. I mean, I recognise that, that even, you know, when we were speaking two years ago, I've had to reassess and rethink and mm. reapply my, but there are still some things that I can't get over. So when people tell me that sex is not binary, I can't agree with that. Mm. Um, but like you, I also absolutely think anybody should be whoever they want to be, as long mm. as it doesn't harm anybody else. Well, I, it was interesting. I, I, I wrote in an article recently that about the Stonewall slogan, which is free to be. I can see what they're getting at. I know what they're mm. getting at. They want people free to be who they are. But on the other hand, freedom isn't an absolute. And there was a ridiculous article in one of the gay papers that looked up the dictionary definition of freedom and said, freedom is doing whatever you want. Well, sorry, Locke, David Hume, Spinoza, and a million other philosophers right the way through to, you know, whoever we're talking about modern now, in modern times now. Freedom is a heavily debated notion. And actually, I think pretty much everybody agrees that freedom is not just doing whatever it is you want. We limit our freedom in all sorts of ways. We say, actually, never mind how angry you are with other people, you may not kill them, you may not hit them, you may not libel them. That is a limit of our freedom. We also limit our freedom to speak. We say you may not incite people to hit, murder, or, or libel other people, and so on and so forth. So freedom necessarily has limits. And I think, look, I think Stonewall, these arguments, I think they're part of a bigger and, and actually more damaging I think they're symptoms of a very damaging context for politics at the moment. Let me give you an example. When that Taliban terrorist got on the bus in the Swap Valley and said, which of you is Malala? And on discovering who Malala was, shot her in the head. I was thinking about this the other day, and so I went back to the UN Declaration on Human Rights. And you'll find there, of course, the uh, right to freedom of expression. You'll find the right to freedom for education. And you will find the right to freedom of religious expression. I'm pretty sure if you talk to that Taliban terrorist, he would say that he was exercising his religious right. I'm pretty sure if you talk to Malala, you will see that she's exercising her right to have, for girls to have education. And both of them would say they were expressing their right to freedom of speech. It's quite obvious. I know this is a huge you know, ex analogy, but it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that rights are not absolute. They clash. So it's no good saying, I have a right to do this. And simply the assertion of that right places an obligation on the other person simply to fold and give in. The assertion of a right is an invitation to a conversation about how we work out the maximum freedom 
and the maximum rights. It's not an invitation unilaterally to do what you want. I mean, on this particular, I mean, I guess the question I keep getting asked by lots of people is, how have we got to this point? How have we got to a point where we are talking about a very small number of people and their rights, and that has dominated a conversation around all of this? And how do we get through it? I mean, one one common thread is people say, this is exactly like, Section 28. Um, the fight for trans rights is the same right, the same fight you had back in the early 90s. Is it? No, I think it's different in character. I mean, I've always thought that Section 28, there's some similarity. Um, Section 28 was essentially a weapon used by some right wing originally peers and then taken up in the House of Commons. I think it was that way around. Um, some notable people who never voted in favour of uh, gay rights at all, um, two particular MPs. Um, it, was a, it was using us, though, as a stick to beat the so-called loony left councils. You know, we were, we were very useful. I mean, every comic, every... Uh, I remember Billy Connolly saying once, uh, we got him to do, a, a, I think it was a benefit for Switchboard in the early days, and he said something to me... Um, Sorry, that's such a name job, but I feel so, <laughs> so proud, so proud that over my life I've been able to have conversations with Billy Connolly. What a, what a giant. But he said to me once, he said, you know, the thing was in the old days, he said, if you weren't going down well with an audience, all you had to do was slag off the gays, he said, and that would get the audience back round. He said, now you do that. He said, after the show, two guys in leather come round and beat the out of you, <laughs> which I just absolutely loved, you know. Um, so, so, so what I'm saying is that I think that Section 28 was was using us as a vulnerable minority in order to beat the loony left councils, and and you had it down here when Brighton, where I did. You know, the councillors would go around and say to people in the council houses, "They're not mending your door because they're spending money. The council's spending money on pride. That's why your door hasn't been painted." So we know that's a tactic. Now, to some extent, I think there is an issue where in the so-called culture wars, and you sit particularly in the states, where actually. Uh, conservative Christians. I got an anonymous package yesterday, a letter with a series of screeds about how homosexuality was against the word of God and so on and so forth. Always anonymous, by the way. And, you know, onto this, of course, they tagged trans rights. So there's no doubt about it that people who argue that trans people should have no rights and so on and so forth are using trans people as a dog whistle in a so-called culture war. There's no doubt in my mind. So to that extent, there's some similarity. However, Myself and others who are arguing that Stonewall's approach is wrong are not arguing that at all, because none of us are arguing that trans people shouldn't have rights, that there shouldn't be a GRA. There are people who argue with that. I profoundly disagree with them. I think it's fine that there's a GRA. I think it's a different kind of argument. And the reason it's a different argument is that there is this clash the point about Section 28 was that there is no clash in saying to kids in a classroom, Leonardo was probably gay. Here is Oscar Wilde. Here is the literature of Oscar Wilde. And actually, if you read it, you'll find that it's full of homoerotic things. Now, what's the difference between Oscar Wilde writing about his love of men and, I don't know, D.H. Lawrence writing about his love of women? That is a pursuit in literature which is valuable. No one loses by adding... The gay question. The problem with changing 
the, the presentation of your gender is that that raises a set of issues. Why does it raise issues? Because women have fought for women-only services and women-only um, uh, spaces for very good reasons, and those reasons are related to their relationship to the male population. And if you're socialised as a man and so on and so forth, it raises issues. That doesn't mean to say you're saying that every trans woman who goes to a woman's conference is necessarily going to be a malign presence. That's not what it's saying at all. It's merely saying, actually, we need to talk about this. And that seems to me to be a not unreasonable discussion to ask for, because actually that way we could all stop talking about it. Do you find yourself in a really uncomfortable position, though, Simon, in this, that you're, you know, you're being vilified by people that perhaps you fought for, you know, throughout your life? Well, there are two, there are two, two things to think about that. There is a group of people who will merrily attack me, for whom, I don't often say this, but for whose intellect and for whose insight I have very little respect because they will argue with what they think and claim I have said when actually I'm quite careful about what I say and they're not arguing with me, they're arguing with somebody who they think is me. So I'm afraid, whilst I do kind of try and put them right and what when they misrepresent me, I have to say, I, I, you know, I can't spend too much time on that. I'm much more worried, actually. I'm not worried about me. I, I, I have no particular status. I happen to have been one of the people who was around when Stonewall was founded. That was very good and well done all of us. But if it hadn't been the 14 of us, it would have been 14 other people. We, we just were there at the right time and we did the right thing. Hurrah, well done. But none of that is of any interest to me. The reason I got involved in Stonewall in the first place was that people were suffering and we needed to do something about it. I am now involved in this because what's happening is that actually kids and young people are not being offered the choice that I think they need. So I, my friends up the road, I mean, in Brighton, it's particularly bad. They have a 10-year-old daughter. Um, we went to supper the other day, and for various reasons, my husband had never met her. I'm not going to use any names, by the way. And um, she looks like a boy. She's so funny. She's She's got a pudding bowl haircut, and she wears... Uh, shorts and trousers and she's a right little ruffian she's the only 10 year old who i don't mind still being up at 10 o'clock at night when we're having supper because she's still interesting she's a truly remarkable girl i just adore her and she's very funny and we go oh, it's nice my husband said she popped out the room and my friends had gone to tend to the supper and my husband said oh isn't he sweet and i went no she's a girl and he went oh my god is she <laughs> because she just looks like a boy. My point being is that the teachers in her school, she's 10, and for the last four years, teachers have constantly tried to suggest that she's a boy. Now, look, that creates a problem where there isn't a problem. You know, the point about this girl is that she is a girl, and she says she's a girl, P.S., brackets. <laughs> I'm prepared to take out a bet now where she'll end up. But that's not the point. The point is that she needs to go through the experience of, of how she presents, who her friends are, what she thinks of herself, da, da, da. She needs to go through that experience without there being assumptions which drive her down a route that ultimately, and the people are arguing for it to be younger, could ultimately put her on a road to medicalization. That is a limitation of choice. It is also a limitation of choice when I was talking to somebody I know this morning who's involved in all this, and they are 
have come across a whole swathe of emails and calls to an organisation from young women who are scared to go to the network that's supposedly for LGBT people in their school and their university, and they're scared to go there because they cannot, they do not think they are boys. They want to mix with other lesbians, but they are not going to be called told that they are transphobic because they don't want, and I don't know whether you would have to bleep this out, but they do not want to suck my dick. Now that is the logical extension of some lesbians have penises. And it's like, no, sorry, they don't. What I'm worried about is that by driving an ideological and dogmatic view of this, this is cutting off choices, opportunities, and importantly, support and solace. So when you go to a therapist as a young girl and you're anxious about all this stuff that comes on young girls and puberty and gender, puberty and pregnancy and breasts and menstruation and the whole nine yards. Well, male attention about, as well. And male so. attention. You know, that's potentially a disturbing period of your life. And what you need yeah. in a therapist is to work out what is going on. You don't need the atmosphere to be such that, there's, that you're driven towards a single solution. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that shouldn't be one of the options. I'm just saying, actually, at the moment, one of the dangers is it's driving towards a single solution. I mean, on that, you paint a picture that is kind of a, something that's bothered me. It's a, about a shrinking of diversity rather than embracing of an expansion of diversity, which is kind of how I feel about the trans women are women mantra. I don't yes. quite get why trans women aren't trans women. Well, it, it, it is interesting. There's, there's, there's a trans woman that I know uh, called Jackie Gavin, who started the, um, the trans network in the civil service when she was a, a civil servant. And she's, um, she's remarkable. And I, I did a, a, a panel with her a few years ago, actually, whenever it was. Whenever, when, when were we last allowed out? Oh, God. 1870. <laughs> 1870. Well, just before 1870, when we were allowed out, Jackie and I did a panel for a con, uh, consultancy. And uh, there was an audience of about 60, I think. You know, this is, when I say consultancy, you know, one of the big four. I can't remember which one it was, to be honest, which is awful. I should, I should know. Lovely clients. Lovely clients. We love clients. Um, Anyway, I did my bit and I talked about the sorts of things I've been talking about now, which are how important visibility is, how we build broad alliances, how we build alliances, and blah, blah, blah. My experience is so more what I thought that meant now and why I thought things were going a bit wrong, because that's what we were asked to talk about, what our view was and what was happening. Jackie, you need to know for this that Jackie was Scott before she was Jackie. So Jackie then told her story, which was just, um, just lovely. Um, and then the question started. But before that, she and I started talking to each other, chatting on about this, that, and the other. And we disagree about some things, and we agree about other things. Um, she also makes me laugh. She's also close regent, so she's naturally funny. So, um, and then this woman put her hand up, and she said, um, I'm really confused by all this. I work in HR, and there's all this stuff about misgendering and dead naming. And, and, oh, and she said, I just don't, what are we supposed to do? I just am confused. And Jackie did this brilliant thing. She leant forward and she said to this woman, she said, well, first thing she said is just calm down. <laughs> and then she said, and this was a brilliant thing. She said, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Scott's bravery. He's yeah. part of me and I carry him everywhere I go. And I tell you, you, I looked at the audience as she said this, and I'd never heard her say it before, but I looked at the audience and all of them visibly relaxed because what she had done was given them the most wonderful entry 
into her story and the richness of her story and that extraordinary bravery of her story that she had uh, shown them that she had moved from Scott and some agony to Jackie and some calm and peace. And I'll never forget it. And it just struck me that it opened up the conversation rather than closed it down. And I, I've always been grateful to her for doing that, actually. And what is sad is that she doesn't have a good experience with Stonewall, I think she would say, um, because... I mean, back to the bigger picture, I don't think Stonewall wants to hear Jackie's voice. And I think that's a shame because the other thing that's the problematic with this is we've been talking about our view or there's been a gay view. There's no doubt about it. And you can see it all over Twitter and commentary that actually there's an awful lot of trans people who don't agree with that position either. And so Stonewall's not holding the ring on the difficult conversations, which is what it could do. Is that a common thing for you that there's the kind of there's the wrong trans woman? It's like there's the wrong feminist, there's yeah, the yeah, wrong yeah. gay person. Well, I was told by I was told by a very senior member of Stonewall wrote to me in an email and said uh, by citing by saying what you've said, you have put yourself outside Stonewall. I'm not sure how you do that as a gay man, but look, let, let let's let's take two steps back though and say, and your question was, well, how has this happened? I think Stonewall is a symptom, as I said before, of a bigger political problem. And I think there are a number of elements to it. I think what you saw in the 80s with the shock jocks and that sort of political discussion and this fragment, the beginnings of the fragmentation, the sectarianism in politics, was what you saw there was the beginnings of people not arguing with the views or the visions or the values of people, but actually delegitimizing them. So you can see it if you look at Republicans and uh, Democrats. Now, the Republicans talk about the Democrats' socialist agenda, because that's a dog whistle word in America. Quite clearly, Biden is not a socialist, but that's you're delegitimizing. You're not arguing with the issues, you're delegitimizing. You can see it here if you look at the left here, basically want a new electorate. All Brexiteers are racist. I mean, I just don't think that's likely. I mean, statistically, I think it's highly unlikely if you look at the polls of who's racist and look at the number of people who voted for Brexit. So I think there's one theme, which is that, the delegitimization of the opposition, which is what you're talking about, you're a bigot rather than talking about. I think there's another thing that's going on here too, which is a strand which has emerged around identity politics, which is, is people used to say the personal's become political. Well, the trouble is the political's become personal. The triumph of the subjective is really damaging because I call the, I call it the as a generation. Everybody speaks to me as a woman, as a gay man, you know, as a ham sandwich, as if somehow being legitimates what they're going to say. And it makes it unchallengeable because your experience is therefore entirely valid. But actually, you can't run organisations or a society around allegations. So what you have to do is honour the subjective so in sexual assault, for instance, all women must be heard. All women must be heard. They must be listened to. But then the allegations have to go through a proper and trusted process. So I think the second thing is the triumph of the subjective, this idea that the feelings... And I think the third thing which that leads to is that identity politics has become delinked from bigger social struggles and the ability to form alliances. So if you look at identity politics, the phrase was, in, was, was originated by a bunch of lesbians in Boston called the Combahee River Collective. But the point was, 
sorry about this, a bit academic, but they're fascinating. I'd love to meet them. They must be 970 now. But they, the point was, they were saying our personal experience is a valid way of understanding politics and that therefore to make these alliances, you, civil rights movement, need to understand us lesbians in the same way that we lesbians, if we're white, have to understand you black people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, the empathy that builds alliances comes from a personal understanding of the difference of personal experience, but it's linked to that bigger social transformation. And I think it's become delinked from the notion I said at the beginning, which was the point about Stonewall was to make it a better country, not just a fight on a narrow definition of self-interest. It's quite interesting when you talk about it like that, because I think of, um, you know, Nicola Sturgeon as our first minister is renowned for having great empathy. She's a great communicator, but she does what you just described, that delegitimizing by saying, as a lifelong feminist, I don't believe that the proposals we're uh, putting forward on GRA reform are any danger to women. Mm. So women then are left going, oh, so I don't actually have, I shouldn't have these concerns. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I suppose just to kind of get to an end, because we could probably yatter on all day, Simon, is, you know, yesterday a woman was charged and is to appear in court um, around crimes apparently to do with things she's tweeted that are allegedly transphobic or homophobic. Right now, I mean, we don't know all the details of this, but right now it feels quite like, a quite a scary place to be a woman, Scotland. You're Scottish. Yes, I was. I spent much of my childhood in Stirling and Edinburgh at the. Um, we like to think of ourselves as progressive. We do like to think of ourselves as progressive. I don't. I mean, I think that's a bit of a myth that there's more progressives in 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 in, uh, in Scotland than there are anywhere else in the world. I think progressives are pretty evenly spread throughout the. Uh, Davidson's Mains Primary School. I was strapped in the playground. I was strapped with a leather strap for kissing a girl in the playground. And you can make of that what you will, Mandy. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it all goes back to my teacher, Mrs. Dunn. Lovely woman. I subsequently met her, actually, when I came to the Prince. Hilarious meeting when you've been five and suddenly you're 25. And there she is. Um, it's a dangerous place. Look. There's a real issue around freedom of expression, isn't there? And I am, I've never really been a great fan of what's called hate speech, not that it's a legal concept in, in, in Britain, but you can, you can increase penalties if actions are um, motivated by the hatred of a group. I, we accept certain limitations on our freedom of speech, don't we? And they're incitement, they're libel, and so on and so forth. Um, I think there's a, there's a danger here that, um, that people are saying things that might be unpleasant. Two things. One is, if people are saying things that are unpleasant, then if Marion Miller, I think she's called, is to be prosecuted by the police for doing that, then as somebody pointed out the other day, the person who posted a loaded gun with a kind of killing TERFs message, TERFs being trans-exclusionary radical feminists, of which, you know, myself and others are apparently one, um, then that person ought to be prosecuted too. So let's, let's to start with, let's be very clear that actually if the police are going to do this, they need to do this in a transparent way, which doesn't damage their reputation for impartiality, number one. Secondly, I'm unsure. The whole point about what I call hate incidents and hate crimes a lot of this, this goes back to the Stephen Lawrence trial. 
And, you know, quite clearly, that was a crime motivated by racism. There was no other connection between the people who did it and Stephen. And as a result of that, quite rightly, the country scratched its head and examined its conscience about that. And out of that grew a number of things, one of which was this notion of the police recording hate incidents. And the idea of that was to operate as a sort of early warning system. But it actually means, or it's transformed into, people having sort of bad conduct marks against their record by the police for reasons which they don't always know and they're not always told. But it's no longer operating as an early warning system. It's now operating as a form of censorship. The danger in this is that it starts to spread out. And it's in particularly like universities, in the very places where debate is supposed to happen, debate is being stifled. So we've somehow got to balance the needs for free speech with the fact that people are um, damaged by it. I refute the idea that speech is damaging and, as people say, violence. Speech is not violence. In fact, it's precisely not violence. And I think the, 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 the downside of being hurt is worth the upside of the freedom to express ourselves that that is the that, that that is the consequence of. So I don't think people should be should be um, protected from being hurt. I think what we should do is concentrate on serious incitement. That's where it seems to me the line should be drawn. So the police, effect, I think, are wasting their time. They're pretending that they're making the world better for certain minorities. In fact, what they're doing is they're undermining their own credibility and they're breaking the possibility of the alliance of people with people who profoundly believe in freedom of speech, who are now going to turn against the police and turn against those minorities because they're going to say they're getting special privilege. That doesn't help us to build a broad alliance for greater freedom for all. And I guess the, the issue for me is that by having these discussions, by exploring all of this, people are saying that this is a terrible, terrible time for people that are in the LGBT community, that we are causing these problems by having these discussions, by questioning issues around the GRA Act, questioning the conflation of sex and gender. Well, I'm sorry, if you're going to argue that there is no such thing as biological sex and that sex is not binary, that is a view that is frankly hugely divisive. That is not a view that is shared by scientists, by the population at large, and by women particularly. It is simply not a view that's, that's widely shared. It's highly controversial. So if you're going to argue that your highly controversial and partial ideological stance is to be protected at all costs, that seems to me to be a non-starter in a society which values the freedom exchange of, the freedom of exchange of ideas. So you're asking for special privileges. I don't think you should have them. I think you should be prepared to defend that view in order to reach a solution for all of us. And I will and others will defend our view in order to reach a solution for all of us. And compromise is not betrayal. Compromise is how we get to a good solution. I mean, I don't know how half of these people, if they're in couples, ever get to decide what film they go and see at the movies. I mean, if the way you live in life in an argument is you've got to win it or there's no argument, then how the hell do you decide, as my husband and I have to do, between The Avengers and Paddington 2? 
as it happens. Probably a good place to end. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No, you, you know, in a relationship, you have to either go and see both or decide. I thought you'd at least choose a Judy Garland film. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Chick Little yeah. versus Big Bang, you know, Bang, yeah. Bang, Kazuma. You, you, freedom is about understanding other people's point of view and being prepared to acknowledge that and then work together to work to find a way of living harmoniously together. That's the point of all this. And again, if you look at the the uh, the United Declaration of Human Rights. It doesn't talk about unilateral rights. It talks about bringing nations together. It's all about rights are not unilateral. Opinions are not unilateral. So the idea of no debate is profoundly undemocratic. But worse than that, it's very impractical. It doesn't get us anywhere. And after all of that, you could still someone could still say, "Does that make you a transphobe, Simon?" Asked Jackie Gavin. I know that's a bit. Some of my best friends are Jews. I don't mean it in that way. I mean that there's a huge range of views here. And those on one side are not full of hate and those on the other side full of virtue. Actually, there's a debate to be had. And it's not between virtue and lack of virtue. It's between different views of biology, social coexistence and the rule of law and the function of law. And we need to reach a decent settlement. And it is a ridiculous position for Stonewall to be in, where we reached a decent settlement previously, where, for instance, previously gay people didn't have to divide their property when they split up. Now, oh my goodness me, if you have marriage, sorry, loves, you've got to have divorce. If you have uh, freedom of, of equality of sex laws, sorry, loves, you can't have sex in public and expect not to be prosecuted if you offend people. That's how democracy works. You accept the responsibilities of the restrictions of citizenship. That's great. Thank you, Simon. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.